very, very good evening and a warm welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral and this joint event by St. Paul's Institute and Cumberland Lodge. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral. And this evening's event has special and very important resonances. First, it is the beginning of the 70th anniversary celebrations of Cumberland Lodge. We congratulate them for all that has been achieved over those years, and we look forward to all that's to come. Cumberland Lodge has a very special place here at the heart of the cathedral, because not only is its current principal, Ed Newell, a previous chancellor of St. Paul's, but the Dean of St. Paul's was one of the founding trustees of Cumberland Lodge 70 years ago. I don't mean, by the way, today's Dean, but his predecessor. Second, this evening celebrates the republication of Cumberland Lodge's founder, Amy Buller's book entitled Darkness Over Germany, copies of which will be available for sale after the event and you will hear more about the book and from the book over the course of the evening. And third, this book is surely a serious warning about people's hungers, not least that for belonging, about what can happen when we feel bereft or powerless and how we can cleave to belief systems, even ones where darkness appears to be light in search of some mooring. If this is a world today where increasingly, if you are not at the table, you are probably on the menu, then this is a book to take very seriously. Populism is not fascism, but it is often its harbinger. We're very fortunate this evening to have a group of speakers who can talk to this subject in an informed and dispassionate way from which we can be schooled in the lessons of history. We are not responsible for the past, but insofar as we don't learn from it, we become complicit in the present and the future it and we bring about. So beyond welcoming each and every one of you here this evening, my only remaining job is to introduce your moderator for the evening, Dr. Ed Newell, who is, as you've just heard, Principal of Cumberland Lodge. His biography appears in your programme. And while I've mentioned that he was previously Chancellor of St. Paul's and remains a great friend of the cathedral, I've not mentioned that Ed actually founded St. Paul's Institute during his tenure here, for which we remain very grateful to him. There's no more app moderator for this joint event than Ed, and we're delighted to welcome him back. So welcome to you. I wish you a provoking and scrutinizing evening. Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to see so many here this evening. We're living in times where many people in Western countries are seeking change. There are genuine grievances, and we've seen fissures emerge with the EU referendum, the US and French presidential elections, and tensions and concerns over the Dutch general elections. And as these fissures are created, 
ground opens up for new and different voices to be heard and to challenge the established order, as the election of Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron demonstrate. And so it's a delicate and risky time. And the burning questions are always, what and who will fill this space? And will they help us to flourish? Or will they appeal to the darker side of human nature? So we're here this evening to explore the shifting social and political landscape and address the question, is open society under threat? And the subtitle of our discussion is A Warning from History. And as Mark has already hinted, it's the subtitle of the new edition of Darkness over Germany, which we're launching this evening. But I actually want to quote, to start with, a speech in the House of Lords on soft power and conflict prevention. And Lord Ramsbottom, who is here this evening, said this. I have been thinking about the youth of this country. I took from my bookshelf a very remarkable book written by a godmother of mine, Amy Buller. It is called Darkness Over Germany, and it was written during the war. It explains the almost religious grip that Nazism had over the youth of Germany. We're republishing this book. The reason is it's being republished for the first time since 1945 in this country, and it was published for the first time in Germany, a German edition, last year. It contains so much to reflect on about nationalism, about populism, about extremism, and how these three isms can grip the hearts and minds of vast numbers of people. And it's a warning about how things can go badly wrong for very good reasons. And to explore these issues, we're, dis we're joined this evening by a very distinguished panel. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Dr. Rowan Williams, who as well as being a theologian and former Archbishop of Canterbury, has spent much of his life working with young people in higher education, just as Amy Buller did. We'll then hear from two other speakers, Professor Mike Ornbach of Nottingham University, who is internationally known for her work on the ideology behind National Socialism. And then from Baroness Elizabeth Butler-Sloss, one of our most distinguished former judges. After we've heard from them, uh, we will also have time for questions and answers. If you have a question that you'd like to address to the panel, could you please write it down on the paper provided and hold it up for a wandsman, the gentlemen and women uh, of St. Paul's who are wearing the uh, very splendid gear and uh, the medallions. You'll see them around, hold them up, they will come and collect them from you. Or if you're into high-tech mode, you can send your question via Twitter, hashtag darkness over Germany. Then to bring our proceedings to a close, we'll hear two responses. The first from Professor Lord Nick Stern, President of the British Academy, and finally from Professor Kurt Barling. Both have very strong personal reasons for being here this evening, as we'll discover later. We'll aim to finish proceedings as close as we can to eight o'clock, giving you plenty of time to uh, get hold of a copy of the book if you so wish. And can I also uh, highlight at the beginning that there's a retiring collection to support the Amy Buller PhD Scholarship Fund at Cumberland Lodge. It's a scholarship that we run in collaboration with Royal Holloway University of London. And if you'd like to make a donation, 
We'd be very grateful if you could do so using the gift aid envelope and filling in the details. Your generosity is much appreciated. Before we hear from Rowan Williams, let's set the scene by hearing an extract from Darkness Over Germany. And I'm delighted to say this evening that our reader is Tamsin Gregg, who's just starred in Twelfth Night at the National Theatre, as many of you will know. And she's here not as Malvolio or Malvolia, uh, as she was uh, in that production, but as the voice of Amy Buller. I want to talk about one of the most remarkable Germans I have ever met. He was a professor of philosophy, but his interests and his knowledge were unusually wide. Apart from having serious discussions with him at various times, I have spent some hours with him at such different places as the London Zoo, the Parthenon Museum in Berlin, and the Art Gallery in Dresden and I always found him not only a delightful companion, but a mine of information about the particular things we are seeing or hearing. Professor Brown, I should add, has a delightful sense of humor, which serves him well in handling situations which throw others into panic or anger. On one or two occasions, Professor Brown had fallen foul of the Gestapo, who suggested that at times he harbored Jewish and other scholars. I know within one month, he and his wife had had about 12 visits from Gestapo men. These young men could not understand, and in the end could not resist, the goodwill and good humor with which he always met them and even welcomed them. If they arrived in the middle of the afternoon, he would invariably say, well, you chaps must choose this time to come because you know it's when we drink coffee. Just decide which room you want to examine while I tell my wife that this afternoon it's coffee and cakes for four. Or if they arrived at 6 p.m., oh, I see the idea. A glass of beer on your way home. In their earlier visits, it was obvious the SS men did not feel they ought to take a glass of beer with the professor, whose premises they were inspecting. And of course, it's always difficult with two Nazis together because no two Nazis dare trust one another. However, one of them said, as an aside to the other, maybe we'll get him talking. And thus they settled down to a glass of beer. Herr Professor, why do you oppose our party? Said one of the young men. Well, you know, it has to be that I oppose you because I believe in God, said the professor. But so does the Führer, came the quick reply. Does he? Really? said the professor. Well, it's funny how differently it takes different people. 
Amy Buller describes in the pages following that extract some long and very complex discussions with Professor Brown about the sources of the Nazi ideology. And one of the things that the professor has to say is that the problem Germany faced at that point was a loss of confidence in politics itself. The old political ideas no longer corresponded to a younger generation's sense of where the real challenges and the real difficulties lay. And this train of thought, says the professor, shows clearly how very different the political experiences of the younger generation were from anything that had called itself political thinking. It's that collapse of confidence in politics itself that our attention is drawn back to again and again in this remarkable book. And one of the consequences of a collapse of confidence in politics is a collapse of confidence in a society's ability to argue well and make corporate decisions. Instead of an environment in which you expect to argue, to negotiate, to decide, you will delegate the decision-making and the thinking, as far as there is any, to an individual or a class commanding loyalty, ultimately in Germany to the Führer. In other words, part of the problem, though not the whole of it, is that loss of confidence. To lower the tone of the discussion, some of you might just remember an episode of The Simpsons in which Homer Simpson runs for public office with the campaign slogan, why can't someone else do it? <laughs> now, that obviously makes us laugh, and yet behind it lies that erosion of confidence in the political itself. Our ability to be intelligent and active citizens, our ability to have good arguments and therefore to make intelligent decisions. I'll come back in a moment to some of the wider implications of that as Amy Buller spells them out in the book. But some of the symptoms of that collapse of political confidence can be traced in other ways. I want to suggest two or three things which Amy Buller's conversations with her German friends bring into focus, which might have some resonance for us in this 
complex and rather overburdened political period when, as has been said, we appear to be having a global political nervous breakdown. First relates very directly to the Führer Prinzip and that handing over of authority, decision-making, and so forth. In several of the conversations which Amy Buller records, quite reasonable people say, we know that the Nazi party is a blunt instrument. We know that Adolf Hitler is a dangerous demagogue. Nonetheless, we trust our own institutions to carry us through. We know that the populace at large have given up on politics, but we, a traditional governing class, can manage the change by managing the government. It didn't take very long for people like that to discover that managing Hitler was not as simple as they expected. Their confidence in the intelligence and resourcefulness of a governing class divorced from an educated civic public was shown to be hollow. Hitler was able to appeal over their heads to create alternative structures of governance and eventually to bypass and render impotent the traditional governing classes. So the idea that a traditional governing elite can use populism or tyranny as a short-term strategy to tide us over a crisis it's not a very safe strategy to adopt. Second point coming out of this. As I've just said, part of Hitler's genius was his capacity to create a kind of shadow government apparatus. One of the most interesting chapters in the book describes the contrast between the traditional German foreign office and Hitler's Department of Foreign Affairs down the road. It produced, as you can imagine, strategic chaos, but it led eventually to the triumph of the Hitler-dominated Department for Foreign Affairs and the total sidelining of the classical foreign ministry especially with the leadership of Ribbentrop, the Department of Foreign Affairs effectively took over the management of foreign policy. And that foreign policy was entirely dictated by the party and the traditional organs of government and diplomacy were rendered helpless. Something of the same strategy, of course, was what Hitler used in the armed forces and also in the police. If you read the history of Germany in the early 1930s, even before Hitler's chancellorship, 
you'll see how successfully he and the party created, as it were, a kind of franchise for peacekeeping, law enforcement, and eventually military action. Militias, glorified vigilante groups, the private armies of the party were allowed in region after region of Germany to subvert the traditional structures of government. The personalization of government became a kind of private franchising of public law-keeping and indeed of the military. In other words, once confidence is lost in the broad base of the democratic process, the significance of public argument and accountable decision-making, the risk of privatized enterprise in law enforcement and the military rises. The law and the army cease to be accountable to the community and become accountable only to the executive. And the political crisis of Germany in the 30s, never mind the moral horrors of it, about which one could say a lot more, but the political crisis is something to do with that breakdown of trust in democracy, in political process, in accountability, in an accountable, responsible state. A third aspect of what's going on in all this is, of course, an intense localism. Amy Buller records so many conversations with people who say, Hitler has given back to Germany and its people, especially its young people, especially its young males, a sense of worth and purpose. That sense of worth and purpose is bound into a sense of the destiny of this nation and this people. Other nations and other peoples will have to be defined by the interests of Germany. Therefore, Germany ends up defining the interest of the human race. Now, the trouble with this is that even in the 1930s, and far more in our own age, few problems are merely local. To suppose that one nation or people can pursue its interests at the expense of others and define the interests of others simply in terms of its own prosperity was an illusion in the 30s and it's an illusion now. But finally, of course, comes the most significant aspect of Amy Buller's perception of Germany and her analysis of its crisis. She comes back again and again to the theme of spiritual bankruptcy. A generation has grown up 
in Germany who have not inherited or internalized a sense of meaning bound in with an ongoing, generous, reflective community. They look for meaning beyond themselves, but look for it not in the transcendent, but in the figure upon whom their hopes and their fears are projected. The magical leader figure who can solve their problems. The figure who is, in effect, infallible. Quote, some of the things other leaders in Germany have said were true, some were false, but I give you now something completely true. I give you also a way of life. This truth must be preserved and we will have no mercy on any who try to interfere with it. The age of uncertainty is over for you. That promise coming into a spiritual vacuum, into a society without enlarging, challenging, illuminating narratives about itself and its place in the universe, that promise was very attractive. Amy Buller is not suggesting that all the problems of political Europe in the 30s would have been solved by a Christian revival, though I think she would have said at that point it wouldn't have hurt. But she is concerned about the way in which the search for meaning becomes distorted and narrowed and eventually poisonous, where meaning is seen in terms of a political program and a set of political personalities. Her challenge, therefore, to her German friends, but also during and after the war to her British audiences, her challenge is, how do we find a myth in the broadest and most positive possible sense of that word? A myth, a set of roles, metaphors, destinies, narratives, which we can inhabit with confidence, which will allow us to judge who and what we are, to resist short-term solutions and long-term tyrannies, which will give us a confidence about where we stand in the universe, not just in our own society. How do we revive that kind of language about ourselves and our world? It's a challenge which still echoes, I believe, for us today. One or two recent books about the controversies of the last 12 months or so have pointed out that, for example, in the referendum campaign, there didn't seem to be a positive story to be told about remaining in Europe. We didn't have a myth about Europe that we could use helpfully. Make what you will of that, but it remains a serious question.
and takes us right back to the first point we were looking at. What happens when people lose confidence in the community they're in, the political processes they're used to, the stories and images that they've inherited? What happens when every impulse pushes them to a different kind of post-political loyalty in which the personal and the arbitrary are allowed to come into focus. That's why this is an important book to republish and to read at this juncture. That's why A Warning from History is a good subtitle for this really remarkable work by a very remarkable woman. Maiken. Darkness over Germany. It's a remarkable book. As a historian, I'm most struck by how far ahead it was of its time. In the 1930s, Buller listens to the voices of ordinary people and sees politics as something that is deeply embedded in personal experience, subjectivity, and emotion. Academic historians have been much slower to recognize this important dimension of our social lives. It is only in the last 20 years or so, under the heading of the so-called cultural turn, that Historians in the universities have begun to recognize that what matters in history, what shapes history, are not just facts or objective conditions, but how these are perceived and interpreted through the matrix, through the filter of culture, language, identity, and feeling. Second, Amy Bullis is, I think, a very important political book. At a time when most of the Western world was united, not just in opposition against Nazism, but against Germany as a country, she challenged a binary division between them and us. She challenged dichotomies between collective good and collective evil and offers instead a very nuanced picture of the moral and political complexities of each individual's behavior that she encounters and describes. There's a valuable lesson, I think, in this method, particularly for today, a time when we all resort all too quickly to collective demonizations of those we perceive as other, be they Jews, Muslims, migrants, but also, I think, as educated liberal people, sometimes those who don't share our values, those who say support Trump, Le Pen, or Brexit. One of the most, one of the saddest phrases I think I heard this year was when Hillary Clinton dismissed the supporters, millions of the supporters of Donald Trump as a basket of deplorables. 
I do not think that is the way forward. I also have one concern, and that is my concluding thought. I have one concern about Buller's book. I think her analysis of national socialism itself remains too narrow. In particular, she perceives it as a result of a simple absence of morality. Germans, it seems to her, driven by the experience of economic crisis and the legacy of an unjust treaty of Versailles, the settlement after World War I, temporarily misplaced, it seems, their Christian faith, and the result was a Hitler cult that took its place. There's no question that the Christian churches across Europe made a very significant contribution to peace building after 1945, very much as Amy Buller had envisaged and predicted it. But what she overlooks is that Nazism had its own moral system, however perverse and grotesque we may find it. In particular, anti-Semitism was not seen by the majority of those who supported it as simply an immoral act driven by self-interest, but rather by one that was grounded in a strong belief that the diasporic nature of the Jewish community and its allegedly legalistic attitude to faith and its strong involvement in international capitalism made this community a threat to the moral order that the Nazis wanted to create. And this was not just a personal obsession of Hitler. This is not just a result of some Hitler cult. It was a belief that was deeply embedded in the political and moral compass of conservatives, liberals, and nationals, nationalists across Germany at the time. This point is important, I think, because if we are today trying to understand the threat posed by intolerance, extremism, radical nationalism, political violence, we need to understand that the supporters of these movements very often have a strong sense that they are fighting for what is morally right. Only by engaging these claims, by understanding morality itself as a debate, not an absolute good that is owned by some and not others, I think, will we be able to challenge such behaviors in the ways we need to, to advance the cause of humanity against the politics of hate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Elizabeth. I've been asked to say something about Amy Buller uh, in the time in which she lived. I was a small child in the 1930s, so I don't have a recollection of it. But one needs to look back at the position of women in the 1930s and how they were not seen in the way in which most women expect to be seen in 2017. Amy Buller didn't have a position of significance or importance 
she didn't have a background that put her naturally into any dominating position. So her meetings in England and in Germany were, in my view, quite astonishing. She met politicians, generals, professors, and very important Nazi figures. She organized constant uh, conferences in Germany, quite often against opposition from some of the Nazi organizers. But the conferences, despite the Nazis, were very successful. She was obviously exceptional, extraordinary, and female. <laughs> and those were not naturally to be up front in the 1930s. She was clever, authoritarian, and terrifying. And I say the word terrifying because I very recently, in the last fortnight, met someone who knew her. And the person who told me about Amy Buller told me that when she spoke to Amy Buller, her brain atrophied. And she was accustomed and is accustomed to meeting people of all sorts. But Amy Buller was too much for her. However, uh, General Lord Ramsbottom, who is a godson of Amy Buller, told me earlier this evening, uh, and he is present tonight, that she did have a gentler side, that he visited her at Cumberland Lodge, and she was uh, very nice to him, but she expected him to play a part in whatever was happening in Cumberland Lodge when he visited. Amy Buller made an unusual and extraordinarily important contribution. Her book, having been sent by the Queen Mother's uh, religious advisor to the Queen Mother, she and the King, late King, invited Amy Buller to tea. And in that conversation, Amy Buller persuaded them that she should have the opportunity to set up, I think it's the St. Catherine Foundation. And the Queen Mother realized that Cumberland Lodge, which had been lived in by a member of the royal family, had just fallen vacant. And Amy Buller persuaded them she should set up the St. Catherine's Foundation at Cumberland Lodge. And my goodness me, what an exceptional legacy she has left to all of us who have the privilege of knowing the existing Cumberland Lodge and the wonderful work that is done there today. Thank you very much indeed, Elizabeth. We'll open up um, shortly for any questions from the audience. So just remind you that if you want to ask a question, you can either do it by Twitter or hold, hold up your question. Like that. <laughs> but um, a, a couple of questions I'd like to ask the panel. First of all, a lot of people are saying, well, it's today, today it's just like the 1930s. Well, clearly, um, that's rather a, 
a bold statement to, to make, but I just wonder whether you might want to tease out some of the things where you think actually there is a lot of resonance and where you think actually that's a very misguided way of looking at current affairs. I don't know who wants to start, but probably talk to Rowan first of all. <laughs> I, I don't believe history ever simply repeats itself. We don't, I, whatever happens in the next 20 years, I don't think we're going to see classical fascism just happening all over again. All sorts of things have happened since the 30s, a consumer revolution, a communications revolution, and various other things. So whatever rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born at the moment, I'm not sure it has the same features. But the lessons we do, I think, learn from the 30s, I would say, have to do with that sense of how we preserve a real, ah, oh, how should I put it? Forgive the jargon for a moment, but a, a spirituality of civic energy, a sense that there is something profoundly spiritually important for human integrity about our civic involvement, about the intelligent questioning we bring to public life and our willingness to keep public argument alive and well. Now, that's part of what withers in the 30s. And I think the point about the morality of the National Socialists is a significant part of that. It's, it's to do with a kind of critique of individualism, isn't it? It's to do with restoring the community to its moral dignity. And that's very tempting. And the trouble is that leaves you with community and individual in opposition. Whereas I think the, the flourishing society is one where individual and community are constantly arguing, recognizing in one another how to shape a common good that emerges from real engagement, not just from either self-fulfillment or tyranny. But sorry, that, that's a long-winded answer, <laughs> but I, I think th those are the things that are different, and those are the things that still ought to yeah. be on the table. Mike, and you want to? Yes. I agree. I don't think history ever repeats itself, but history has always been an important armory, if you like, a, a repository of thoughts and political weapons on which actors in the present draw to give their causes credence, force, and authority. And in that sense, I think the legacy of National Socialism is very much with us today and hasn't gone away as a threat and a problem. Not because of simple repetition, but because it can be roped into a narrative of a smug triumphalism of the right that gives it that illusion of historical depth and power. I was at a panel discussion at the Leo Beck Institute a, a few months ago where we debated the republication of Hitler's Mein Kampf, which the German state had prevented since 1945 using copyright legislation. The copyright expired last year. So to preempt a flourishing of, of problematic reprints, uh, the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich was charged with 
uh, providing a critical uh, scholarly edition, which has, I think turned out very well and, and does a great job at putting that text in its historical context. But what is ironic is that throughout the world, of course, Mein Kampf had not been banned. It had been banned in Germany. It has been a global bestseller. It has been on the bestseller lists in India in particular, consistently in the top 10 for many recent years. And again, this doesn't mean that people are using it as a textbook to implement Hitler's policies today. But I think it does illustrate that problem that there is a, a historical mythology of the right in which National Socialism continues to feature very prominently, so we need to continue to talk about it. It is not just past history. I worry about the current thinking of a lot of people, both in the United States and in the, U, uh, and in the UK, as is shown by the election of Trump and by Brexit. There are a great many people who are fed up with existing politics, criticize politicians, are concerned with individualism, and don't like what is going on among the elitism, as they see it, of the political par uh, parties. If we found ourselves, as is possible, in financial difficulties, in some countries or across the world, one only has to look at the current ineffectiveness of many political people and then look back to the 1930s and the ineffectiveness of the opposition to the Nazis. There were a great many people, according to Amy Buller, who were very worried, upset, wholly opposed to what Nazism was and to Hitler and the National Socialists, but they were ineffective, and that's what worries me. Thank you. Can I pick up another um, point about um, the book, which is we've talked about trying to discuss things well and effectively, and some of the discourse that's been going on uh, over recent events, but in Amy Buller's time, she came under a lot of criticism for actually engaging in dialogue uh, with, with Nazis. And she was probably being monitored by MI5 for what she was doing. Was she right to, to, to take academics, British academics, to have those discussions, do you think? Was that the right thing to do in those circumstances? Maybe. Elizabeth, okay. go first. Well, yeah. I, I take the view she's absolutely right. I think we have to be realistic. During the Thatcher period, when we had the Irish Troubles, uh, behind the scenes, there were constant discussions with the IRA. We didn't know about them. We probably would have disapproved of them. But that was going on, and it led to what in those days at least was good, which was the Good Friday Agreement, which is perhaps disentangling at the moment. But it has produced peace in Northern Ireland. I was very interested that the new president of South Korea is saying quite simply, if North Korea will stop sending off um, missiles, he wants to talk to them. And even Donald Trump says he will talk to North Korea. There is, and we need to talk, I suspect, in Syria. There's no point pretending that you can lean on people 
without actually having dialogue. I thought it was astonishingly sensible of uh, Amy Buller to continue to take people to Germany, to see what was going on, to understand, and just possibly, though unsuccessfully, to try and stop it. Mike, do you want to Yes, um, what the sense we get from the book of the kind of dialogues that Amy Buller was engaging in, I think, is, is remarkable, laudable, thoroughly impressive. The range of different people she talks to and the space she gives in bringing their voices to the fore, not imposing her own simple interpretation on them, but simply letting them speak for themselves and bringing together a range of different perspectives gives a, a picture of fantastic nuance and richness. So all of that I find extremely useful. What of course she doesn't talk about in the book is the more official side of these visits. And when I read that she was taking British delegations over there to hold conferences on the role of philosophy in educating the young, where the keynote was given by Alfred Rosenberg, who was probably the single most pernicious ideologue of the Nazi regime, who easily outdid Hitler in radicalism on most questions, and especially the racial question by some margin. I do wonder whether there isn't a, another side to this, where perhaps even by listening to these people, it gave them a a sense of legitimacy, and we know that the Nazi regime up to 1939 was very interested in international legitimacy. The Olympic Games in Berlin, for example, were staged in a way that would appeal to an international audience. Um, temporarily anti-Semitic propaganda was removed from the city so as not to offend the international guests. So I do worry that there is a, a another side of these visits uh, that aren't really the subject of the book, but that I would be more concerned about. Rowan, do, when do we draw the line about when we have dialogue and when is it? I think, I think Megan's point is an important one, that there is often a risk of being instrumentalised by the other side to give legitimacy, to give plausibility. Um, and clearly that's a, a criticism that was made of Amy Buller in, in her day. And that's a very difficult call because I'm rather with Elizabeth that it's dangerous to suppose that the people you are arguing with have no good reasons for thinking what as they think. Or reasons, anyway, they might not be very good ones, but reasons, <laughs> you know, you, you need to hear that, that argument. You need to understand what generates that kind of argument. And part of what I think the book does precisely by these conversations with such a range of ordinary German people is to show what particular soil in the experience of the German soldier, the German farmer, the German factory worker, what the soil is on which this sort of thing can grow. Now, to understand that, I think, is to understand something immensely important. The point at which that goes a bit further and where you end up saying, well, you know, they've got a point. And you, you can lend your name, as it were, to 
another system where you give a platform to somebody who really ought not to be given a platform. It's the Rosenbergs of this world. That's the, that's the watershed point, but not always easy to identify, whether in Germany in the 1930s or Northern Ireland in the 80s and 90s or Syria today or whatever. Uh, we're going to move into some questions from, from the floor. And um, with the wonders of technology, your questions are starting to appear on the screen. Can I just say that if anyone else has got a question they want to ask, and if you'd actually like to ask it in person, um, then if you put your name on the sheet as well when you hand it up, um, there might be an opportunity for you to, to take a microphone. But um, just want to uh, fire in the first question to our panel. It says, in a world where we, communication is in 140 characters and elections are won by endless repetition of vacuous slogans, how can we recover the political dialogue that Rowan Williams advocates? <laughs> Simple question to <laughs> set, set off. And that's, that was sort of aimed at you, Rowan. Yes, Do you want yes. to take it on first and then uh, the others can chip in? Well, I have a, a rather naive and old-fashioned belief in the importance of people being physically there to be questioned. I believe in hustings. I believe in the significance of the vulnerability and difficulty of public, public argument. And I think it's one of, one of the things that churches and other faith communities can do in this political environment, to say, well, we will provide that, that setting for a different kind of exchange. Now, that doesn't answer it all, but I think it's one way of getting a bit beyond the sheer enclosure and bubble of electronic communication. Um, hmm, I'd, I'd like to hear from others on this yeah. topic, because I don't think <laughs> it's simple at all. I don't know the answer to it, <laughs> I have to say. I think people have to go on trying to get through. And I don't think it's easy, but there are various ways of doing it. I think there are sensible uh, commentators in the newspapers, the major broadsheets do put in uh, sensible suggestions, not always um, the same. And one of the things that I like about the major uh, broadsheets is they do actually put in different points of view. And I just hope people read beyond the sound bites. But I think it is extremely difficult. The question has raised a very tricky question. The concerns about a dumbing down of politics, turning it into entertainment, are almost as old as human history. I think the ancient Romans worried about it. And certainly Germans in the 1920s worried about this obsessively. It was in fact one of the issues the Nazis were trying to address. People were confused, allegedly, by the fragmentation of public opinion and by the fact that there were all these new illustrated publications out there, images being seen as the hallmark of triviality, especially publications aimed at women based on fashion that spread fake news and an emotionally or affect-driven, misguided approach to politics. And the Nazis came to power in part on a platform to restore order. So I'm always a little skeptical about some new 
feature of modern communications being equated with a crisis. I agree that there, we haven't perhaps become as good as we should be at using the potential of electronic communications for political debate. And one of the things that worries me most is the power of these algorithms to tailor news to the tastes of the individual concerned, so you will only ever hear what the system knows you want to hear. So that is a problem. But I think technology also provides very powerful antidotes to this. I teach at a university. I love the face-to-face -face engagement with the students. I love that sense of live debate. But that only reaches a small group of the population. And if you look at what happened in the referendum, there was a very clear, the one indicator for how people voted was whether or not they had a university education. That mattered more than income, ethnicity, gender, or anything else. So we do need to reach beyond the boundaries of that space of sophisticated, elevated conversation. And I do think electronic media are a powerful vehicle for doing that. Just very briefly, I have designed and run with colleagues at the University of Nottingham and the British Library, a MOOC, a massive online open course. This runs every year. It attracts over 10,000 people every year who debate with one another on one platform the title of this is Ideology and Propaganda in Everyday Life, where we have a platform where US Marines were talking to Mexican anarchists face-to-face, or face-to-face in a virtual space, about what they mean by freedom, by community, and by justice. And that was, to me, a more exhilarating educational experience than anything I have experienced in the sheltered classroom of a university. So I do have some faith that we can use technologies properly in this. Can I ask Rowan whether he thinks we might learn a trick or two from interfaith dialogue in this? It seems to me that a lot of political discourse is very adversarial um, and actually that doesn't help things. And the Brexit, um, well, the, the referendum debate seemed to be a pretty low-level quality debate, a great slanging match going on. In the world of interfaith dialogue, one has to go much deeper. And I wonder whether there's any wisdom that we might be able to draw out from the way that you as a, an international religious leader uh, might be able to share, share in that. Oh, um, I think it's, it's back to the question of scale that Merkin was raising, which, which is a, a serious one. Um, I found in that context that what mattered was to have the opportunity of an encounter where trust could be built up so that people could say difficult things without panicking. Um, but how to do that on a scale that is appropriate, as has been said. Now, I think we've been given a rather interesting example of how it might be done. But I, I would underline, I think, that in the interfaith context, as in others, the key thing is does somebody feel safe saying what they want to say to this person or this group? And without that, you won't get very far. Um, now, with due respect to some online discussion, some of it is also designed to keep you safe in another way, that you're allowed to say what you like because nobody will actually challenge or 
um, come back at it, except in the most adversarial and absolute way. So that what I earlier called the sort of negotiating side of dis discourse doesn't come in very much. Thank you. Just a, another question uh, has come in. How do you rebuild society so that people can have a sense of purpose and meaning? What combines society together in a pluralistic, multi-faith, multicultural context? I wonder whether anyone on my right-hand side would like to <laughs> respond to that one. I chaired a commission on religion and belief, and we took evidence over uh, two, three, two years. A very widely based commission with an imam and a rabbi, and a lot of people from various religions. Uh, and I got pulled in by the former Bishop of Oxford, uh, Richard Harris. And we produced a report about 18 months ago called Living with Difference, in which we were asking as our main question, uh, should there be a national dialogue at national, regional, and local levels and to my great joy, the Temple Church with uh, Reverend uh, Robin Griffith Jones and uh, King's College London with uh, Professor Malaya Malik, who is a Muslim, uh, have picked up that challenge. And we're going forward to see with, we hope, further money from King's College to look to see whether we can discuss across the country ways of bringing people together, because we've got to do something. Um, we live in a multicultural, as they say, uh, world, where there are too many groups who live in an enclosed way, rather than belonging in an outward-looking way. And we just need to talk to people. And perhaps more important, the thing that we learnt in all the discussions we had when we went to a number of cities, as well as holding our own meetings, was the importance of listening to people, to see other people's points of view, to see the extent to which we can perhaps at least acknowledge and understand, even if we don't agree with what other people think. So we're working on it. And it is, I think, an extremely difficult but worthwhile project. Now, we have a couple of questions with names attached to them. And um, I wonder whether I could invite uh, Sam Fowles and Janet Bloor to come. And uh, the, the microphone is set up right in the center there. So if you'd like to come uh, forward, um, you can deliver your questions in person. So it's Sam Fowles and Janet Bloor. I can see Sam leaping up. So. Janet. Hi there. This is a rather intimidating microphone. I feel <laughs> under pressure to sing or, or something. Um, my question is, denigrating politics has turned into, ironically, quite an effective political tool. Um, Amy Buller quite rightly identified the problem when people lose faith in politics, but making people use, lose faith in politics turns out to be a great way to win elections. How do we, how do we address that? <laughs> Should we just have the other question first and, and then we'll, 
answer them as a pair. Thanks, Sam. Um, my question seems a bit um, small in comparison. <laughs> okay, do the actions of Trump bypassing the political elite, hiring and firing at will, have any resonance for 1930s Germany? Thank you. Well, maybe we'll start with that question, because I know that Maiken has, has written in The Independent uh, about uh, 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 this sort of issue. So maybe you'd like to comment on Donald Trump. <laughs> I am um, rather wary of easy comparisons between Trump and Hitler. Ironically, in part because I think Hitler had a much more coherent worldview and philosophy of politics than Donald Trump did. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the remarkable things, if you read Mein Kampf, which in itself is a unique text, it's a very big two-volume book published well before Hitler came to power. So it's an autobiography as well as a manifesto, but one that cites incessantly from canonical literature and philosophy, from Cicero and Homer, countless quotations from the Bible through the entire uh, uh, canon of early modern political thought, anything from Machiavelli right through to the 19th century, Wagner, Nietzsche, and so on. Hitler is obsessed with trying to ground his own take on politics in the best that in his reading Western civilization has to offer. Now, obviously, that involves an, an, a phenomenal amount of distortion and editing. But, but that quest very much defines, I think, what Hitler and to some extent Nazism was about. They tried to base themselves on the basis of Western civilization. And I think in that there is a difference between what the Nazis did and the current claims about the fact that politics is bankrupt. The Nazis rejected the immediate political setup of uh, Weimar, the fragmentation of the political parties. They did not reject a thousand years of tradition of political thought and political philosophy. So in some ways, ironically, they were much less populist than Donald Trump is. A flip side of that is, of course, that Donald Trump is also a much greater pragmatist than Hitler was. Uh, and I think we can certainly see it in his foreign policy at the moment, where he has performed a complete U-turn on almost every electoral promise that he's made. So I'm, I'm less certain at the moment where the domestic politics are, are going, but I think in some ways we see here a populist, a dangerous populist, someone who's very hungry for power, but I don't think an ideologue in the full sense of the word from which Hitler was. I think that's the definitive answer, but anyone like to add comment to that? Otherwise, we'll move on to Sam's. <laughs> we'll go into Sam's question about how do we restore um, faith in, in politics? I thought that that was a brilliant question, actually, that making people lose faith in politics wins elections. What it doesn't do, though, is show you what happens on the far side of an election. How does a regime elected under those conditions 
then hold itself accountable to an, in, an intelligent populace, an intelligent citizenry. How, do, how, how is that citizenry encouraged to push back, to challenge, to discern, to work forward? Because, yes, you can persuade people to lose faith in political elites and win an election on the promise that you will then make everything different. The trouble is that the routine structures of governance have to be served. The ordinary prosaic business of negotiation has to go on, as Donald Trump is discovering, much to his chagrin, I think. Um, and that means in the long run, you have to pay some attention to what makes for intelligent public discourse. And you're back where you started. <laughs> That's to say you're back with the question of how you learn to trust people to act for you in politics, how you learn the discernment that allows you to choose between candidates. Again, sorry to re repeat it, how you argue. So I don't, I don't think the... Um, Losing faith in politics, so you win elections, is the end of the story. But it's a wonderful question because <laughs> it, it, it brings into focus the paradox at the heart of populism. Sam is a Cumberland Knowledge Scholar, so we expect good quality <laughs> questions. Of but <laughs> before can I, I ask just put a plug in? Can I just, before you do that, can I just, I'll let you have a word, but I just want to, to queue up the, the final three questions. Um, and uh, I'd just like to invite up uh, Maritz Hammond, Richard Burridge and Tim Hillier to, to the microphone. And while they're gathering, Elizabeth, you can come in. <laughs> I don't know the answer to the question. I, like Rowan, I think it's extremely interesting and one that perhaps requires rather careful thought more than this evening. But I did want to say, as a member of the House of Lords and a regular attender, I see a great deal of the work that is done by ordinary MPs as well as ministers in the House of Commons. And I'm very sad at the way in which they are underrated, disregarded, not properly seen for the good work they do. And because a few people uh, took money that they weren't probably entitled to, but in each house, there's been a perception that MPs are not to be trusted, that ministers are not to be trusted. And I sit on the sidelines as an independent peer, watching what I think is very good work going on, uh, both in government and in opposition and among the, the backbench MPs. And I just think that is something that ought to be much more widely known. Thank you. We have our final three questions and we'll try and deal with them properly, but also quite succinctly because of, of time. But would you like to fire away, please? Okay, um, thank you. So I'm very sympathetic with the um, vision that Rowan Williams laid out that we need new spirituality and civic engagement um, and people kind of caring about the common good and so on. But I actually just learned at another talk yesterday that those cosmopolitan values and liberal values and maybe tolerant values are actually themselves unequally distributed and they're, they're concentrated in the more affluent and less deprived areas. So I wonder whether 
you know, us sitting here in quite a privileged setting saying we need this and this kind of new civic engagement, whether that would not seem like another sort of elitist imposition to the left behind. You know, aren't, aren't these values themselves a privilege that we have? Okay, thank you. That's the first question. Then the second question, please. Um, Richard Burridge, Life Fellow of Cumberland Lodge. Um, granted Lord Williams's point that history does not repeat itself in a simple way, though the rock journalist Steve Turner pointed out it had to because nobody was listening, uh, both Thucydides and Plato were clear that human nature being what it is, events recur, whether that's 5th century Athens or 1930s Berlin, or 21st century London. And from Amy Buller's expose of 1930s Berlin, I'm wondering with the new subtitle, A Warning from History, what is the warning? Amy saw what happened in the Nazis as a failure of the church and the universities. For us in a post-Brexit and post-Trump world, how can we prevent the darkness gathering not over Germany but over London. Thank you. Tim Hillier. Who could fulfill the role of Amy Buller if required in modern-day Britain? Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Well, three really interesting <laughs> questions. Um, but we've only got relatively short time to address them. Would anyone like to pick up on any of those questions? <laughs> we'll save the Amy Buller one to the end. Um, but maybe, what about the values one? Uh, are we complicit? Yeah, Rowan will take that on. Yes. Um, I don't think that the, the values of civic maturity, public debate and so forth are just a matter of local interest. Simply because they also entail giving communities worldwide, including disadvantaged communities, marginal communities, subaltern communities, giving them voice. So I wouldn't say that this is just a sort of Western liberal program. I'd like to think that this was something about recognizing a fundamental human dignity. And to pick up a theme from an earlier discussion this evening, one of the things that is most dangerous in a society is when large numbers of people don't feel that the society has any respect for them mm. or any confidence in them. It's not just about people having confidence in society. It's about a community having confidence in expectations of people. So I would want to connect this not just with a sort of liberal program for being, being nice and articulate, but a program for really giving voice, allowing voice to people. And that can put some very tough questions back to our comfortable Western elite setting too. Thank you. Mike, and we're going to go with the question about a warning from history. Yes. I have two entirely contradictory answers to this question. But in the spirit of keeping debate alive, I think they are two sides of the same coin. 
Amy Buller reports that many of her interlocutors, the ordinary Germans, and especially the clergy, but also the school teachers she talks to, regret very much not having opposed Nazism more vigorously before it came to power. So many of these people are saying, we now see the problem, we now see what we ought to be doing, but we cannot do it anymore because we will be sent to a concentration camp. And it is not cowardice that stops them from doing that, but uh, I think an honest search for finding ways of doing the most good under conditions where the obvious moral path is blocked. So early opposition is clearly key not being bought off by small concessions to one's real or perceived self-interest as a group, not giving in to that kind of identity politics, but looking at the ethical core of each political project and holding it to task where it falls short. At the same time, I think the other key lesson from history is that to some extent, the talk of crisis is what produces the crisis. This comes back to the earlier question we had, uh, the, the, the disillusionment with politics card seems to be what wins elections. As I said earlier, the Nazis were extremely skilled at fostering a discourse of crisis and, if you like, of moral panic. And I think we have to resist that. We are not in 1933 Berlin here. We have, you know, a, a, an incredibly lively, I think, civic culture in this country, which I, having, you know, being German, although I've spent 30 years living here, greatly admire and cherish. And I think that is something to be celebrated and, and not to be forgotten in all this constant worry, justified as it may be, about some of the demagogy that we are also seeing in the political spectrum. Thank you. Elizabeth, who is Amy Buller for today? Well, I don't think there is anyone that I know who would be anything like Amy Buller. I suspect someone like she, or possibly he, would arrive when it was needed. I'm a great believer that people come out of the woodwork, if you might say, actually to say something that needs to be said when that moment arrives. And I suspect it will be on social media rather than in the newspapers or in a book. But there will be someone if it's needed. But pray God that it's not. Well, we do actually have our very own Amy Buller here this evening because we have Tamsin Gregg. And we're going to hear from Tamsin again now. Um, just to set the scene, um, this passage from Darkness Over Germany describes a conversation between Amy Buller and Wilhelm, a Nazi officer whom Amy Buller had previously known as a doctoral student. And they're discussing the delegations of British academics that Amy Buller brought to Germany in the 1930s to meet Nazi leaders. We ordered our coffee, and Wilhelm inquired eagerly, who were the British group of educationalists you took to Berlin, and who were the lecturers on the Nazi side? I showed him the programme, and when he had glanced at it, he said, tell me, 
Did your people see something of the inspiration of the philosophy of our new movement in Germany? To which I replied, Wilhelm, how can you ask me that? It is a rotten philosophy. And those of us who know and love Germany felt humiliated that a country so famed for scholarship should have such second-rate people teaching in your universities. Almost angrily, he replied, Oh, you have grown so old in your country that you do not know new wine when it is there. Old wine or new wine, it is rotten, Wilhelm. And not only am I distressed for your country that many are being misled, but I cannot think what you are doing to your mind if you allow yourself to accept such stuff as that. There was silence for a time, and I realized that Wilhelm was almost too deeply moved to speak. When he did, his face was pale as he turned to me and said very quietly, for God's sake, don't raise any further conflict for me. I was introduced to Hitler. You won't understand, and I cannot explain either because I don't know what happened. But life for me took on a tremendous new significance. After all, Germany would rise again. After all, I was wanted. I have since committed myself, body, soul, and spirit to this movement for the resurrection of Germany. I can only tell you that I cannot go back. I cannot question. I am pledged. I beg you not to try to set up conflict in my mind. I dare not let that happen. For I am as much committed to Hitler as the fundamentalist is to the Bible. Believe me, I cannot face uncertainty and conflict again, no. For me, it is Hitler and the resurrection of Germany on one side or suicide on the other. I have chosen Hitler. Leave me in peace with my choice. We're now going to have a response from Lord Stern. Thank you. And thank you for such a stimulating discussion. I'm going to respond by returning to the question, open society under threat. 
that's the language of Karl Popper, the great philosopher uh, from my own university, the London School of Economics. And we've heard that question treated today largely in political and philosophical terms. And that is in many ways as it should be, because that's the kind of question that it is. But I'm going to respond by offering something complementary, and that is to ask two fundamentally important economic questions intertwined with those. And you did ask an economist, so you should have seen it coming. <laughs> um, the first question is, under what economic circumstances is the ground fertile for populism, extremism, nationalism, and inward-looking? It's a key question. And the second is, uh, why does it matter so much now? Why is that kind of phenomenon so dangerous in the coming one or two decades? Um, but before I turn to those, I wanted to come back to how this is intensely personal to myself and my family. My father came here as a refugee from Hitler's Germany in January 1939, a few weeks after Kristallnacht. Um, his mother, Selma, my grandmother, died in the camps in uh, Riga. Uh, his father, Hermann Stern, um, died in the early 1930s in large measure from the wounds he received fighting for the Kaiser in the First World War. This is an intensely personal story. There are many of us, I'm sure, in this room, Kurt will follow, uh, who, for whom this is a very personal story. Um, my father was um, never bitter. He loved life. He celebrated life. Um, but he stood all his life politically against the forces of darkness and the forces of the right in the UK. His own vehicle then was uh, the Labour Party, but his reaction was intensely political as he celebrated the life that he loved. Um, my mother too, I was reminded very much of her experience uh, when reading Amy Buller's epilogue because she graduated roughly at the same time as the uh, women uh, that Amy was talking to in the end of, uh, of her book. Um, my father loved the UK. Uh, he couldn't understand, but he celebrated the um, working class voters of Brentford, many of whom worked in the gas works, electing a German Jew with a very thick accent. He thought that was absolutely wonderful. But lest we celebrate too much, uh, he was also um, interned on the steamship uh, Dunera, taken to Australia in June 1940, and abused and robbed um, by um, very unpleasant British um, people who were running that ship. It was one of the great scandals. So they were contemptuous. And uh, as we celebrate what the UK was and is, we should also recognize at that time how difficult and, and unhomogeneous, differentiated it was. So that's the uh, personal story. When is the ground fertile for populism? It's when I think people are dislocated, uh, disillusioned, disappointed. How does that come about? Largely economically, that comes about. Uh, most recently, we've seen the financial crisis, um, which was largely a result of incompetence based on uh, market 
fundamentalism. But there are deeper, longer-term stories at work here, and the stories of technology and globalization. First technology, then globalization. Half a million people in the United States retail this century have lost their jobs. That's not globalization. That's technology. And what we have to understand is how those forces are intertwined. And we know that that technological change, and that's a good thing, that technological change will gather pace. It's not going to slow down. We have to do much better, much better now, at handling that, uh, that kind of change. This is not the place to go into it in detail, but first understand the change and then think about how to handle it. In this case, uh, we have to uh, look back to Versailles. Kurt points out in his, towards the end of the, his forward, how important that was. And we understood that too. Keynes wrote the economic consequences of the peace, and he was blackballed by the British Academy, and his fellowship was denied for about 10 years because it was thought that was thought to be unpatriotic. And we did learn, and we brought the agenda, the great agenda of the immediate years after the First World War, when after the Second World War, we did much better. We had the UN, the Declaration of Human Rights, the Bretton Woods Institutions, uh, the Marshall Plan. We did it much better that time around. That was the last time we had a global agenda. Now, this is my last point. This time, we do have a global agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. 70 years later, again, we have a global agenda. That should give us optimism, and it does give me optimism. But as we understand that, we have to recognize that we're in a hurry. The next 20 years determines the future of the planet. The economy will double, infrastructure more than double. If it looks anything like the old economy, forget about two degrees, forget about managing climate change. The next 20 years are absolutely decisive. That is why collaboration and internationalism is so important now and why uh, the kinds of things that we see in terms of populism and inward looking could be so dangerous. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Maybe there we can discover the source of meaning and purpose um, for the future. Someone who's been deeply involved in getting uh, this book republished is Kurt Barling. So we're going to give Kurt the opportunity to respond to what he's heard this evening as the person who's written the forward to the, the new edition. When I was a young boy, about 10, I took a number 29 bus from North London and I stopped off at St Paul's Cathedral and I came in making a racket and I was told to be quiet, so I'm glad to be back <laughs> to make a bit of a racket. <laughs> and um, you'll be pleased to know I'll invite you to make a bit of a racket at the end of my talk, brief as it is. You will get your cue. Bad history should not unknowingly repeat itself. In 2014, I wrote a book about an incredibly intolerant man with incredibly intolerant supporters. They were tolerated 
and even supported by agents of the British state. He wreaked havoc on the streets of North London, supported international terrorism, and played host to Al-Qaeda terrorists under the watchful eye of our security services. He affronted democratic values, and for too long he was allowed the space to flourish unchallenged. His name was Abu Hamza, now serving life in a US supermax penitentiary. As a journalist for the BBC, I was perplexed as to why this essentially unremarkable man, who played the demagogue very well indeed, captivated the hearts and minds of many young Muslims and paralyzed the critical faculties and actions of those who should have known better. When I made a TV program about him in 2001, he accused me of being a racist. And after 9-11, had Channel 4 running scared for several months before they would broadcast. The situation back then reminded me very much of stories of Germany in the 1930s. I'd heard from my own father, born in Nuremberg, in 1930. The clue is in my name. I was reminded of how democratic debate was and could be distorted and intelligent discourse dampened in times of great need, fear and stress. Of course, in our society, we cherish the freedom of speech. But let's break it down. What we should really be defending is the freedom to debate. It is the freedom to debate the big issues of the day openly and fairly that is under stress today. With the rise of populist discourse in liberal democracies the world over. Looking for certainty in times of great uncertainty seduces too many citizens into the gravitational orbit of those with facile answers to complex problems. We must challenge those who create an unlevel playing field for debate, where belligerence, intolerance, easy rhetoric create a vacuum sucking out reasoned argument and truth. Fake news, echo chambers and closed minds are the enemies of truth and an open society. This is, of course, what Karl Popper warned us against in his treaties, the open society and its enemies. Back to late 2014, I encountered Amy Buller's book, Darkness Over Germany, for the very first time when I was invited to Cumberland Lodge to talk to a group of LSE undergraduates about that Abu Hamza book. Program director Owen Gower recommended Amy's book because he recognized in it parallels with my own Abu Hamza experiences. 
Naturally, I've remained perpetually fascinated by those stories of the Nazi times my father used to tell me as a boy, like the Nuremberg rallies. I can remember vividly cycling around the Reichspartei Tagsgelände with him, where those infamous Nazi rallies took place. Bad history needn't repeat itself. Like the other readers who've heard from this evening of Amy's book, I was bowled over by how she'd managed to preserve such authentic voices and genuine insight into the psyche of the 1930s and fascinated how, as you've heard, in much more chauvinistic times, this woman could get the book published in the middle of a war that was not yet won. Think about it. It's the stuff of Cumberland Lodge legend that you've already heard that the Queen of England took a shine to Amy. Her book and her ideas about the importance of open and critical debate and supported her in founding Cumberland Lodge. By pure chance, a few weeks after that talk to LSE undergraduates, I encountered Munich-based publisher Elizabeth Sandman in a hostelry close by here, the blacksmith and toffee maker, in which I insisted to her if she was a serious German publisher, she would consider having Amy book, Amy's book translated into German. Of course, obviously, she thought at first I was just a batty, pushy Brit. But of course, as soon as she read the book, she agreed it should be published for a modern German audience. The first German edition of Amy's work came out in 2016. Now, of course, once it was out in German, how could her old friend Piers Russell Cobb at Arcadia Books here in London not match her charm, instinct, and zest to revive this readable and insightful book for a modern British audience? We who pride ourselves on fairness in debate and clear rules of public engagement in the mother of all democracies needed, he felt, to appreciate Buller's work anew. I think being more open to alternative narratives of history might just help us take a more balanced view of the future. It is part and parcel of our constant struggle to maintain a level playing field for truth. Now, as I draw to a close, I'd like to do something very un-British. I want you all to fill your lungs and repeat a few words after me. Remember, Amy is with us, so don't pretend you're in the whisping gallery. Do it in full voice to fill this space, <laughs> a magnificent public space, which has defined us and, by the way, defied others throughout our history. When the playing field is even. It's not a whisper, it's a big voice. When the playing field is even.
And the goals are clear. And the goals are clear. And the rules are open and transparent. And the rules are open and transparent. And the referee is fair. And the referee is fair. We can make change happen. We can make change happen. We can keep hope alive. We can keep hope alive. I commend to you Darkness Over Germany, a warning from history by Amy Buller, a forthright and at times exhilarating reminder of exactly why that level playing field should never be taken for granted. Thank you. We're going to give the final word to Amy Buller, but before we do so, just a quick reminder that books are available afterwards. And can I ask you all to thank very much all our speakers this evening. The real tragedy of the Nazi betrayal, not only of Germany, but of Europe, is that it claimed to have given a radical answer to some of the most fundamental problems of our age. It is of the utmost importance that we should understand the problems they were trying to solve, and then analyze closely the fallacious and heretical character answers. They proclaimed a life-giving principle for their race and nation, which by its very nature should have been recognized immediately both inside and outside Germany as having no universal validity and as bound to lead to the destruction and death of other nations, as well as the German nation itself. To a generation without faith, the Nazis gave a brutal philosophy, and millions of lives have been sacrificed to free the world of this false answer to a real need. But let us not forget that it was caused by real need. We are now faced with the greater task of bringing healing to the nations, including our own.